0: Welcome to The Academic Citizen, a podcast about critical issues in higher education.
1: The podcast is sponsored by ASAWU, the Academic Staff Association of Wits University, based in Johannesburg, South Africa.
0: Our podcast explores a wide variety of issues about university life relevant to staff and students looking at issues in South Africa,
1: Africa and beyond. In each episode, we speak to a guest who has special insight or expertise in a particular subject, and we also bring in student voices linked to that theme. My name is Nosipho And my name is Mahita Ikani. And, and we're, we're your hosts. hosts. In today's episode, we turn our attention to the higher education system in India. We speak to postgraduate student Jigisha Bhattacharya, who studies at Jawaharlal Nehru University in Delhi. Students at universities in India are battling multiple forms of discrimination, most notably on the basis of caste and gender. Massive debates are taking place about access and inclusion to the country's public universities. With protest action multiplying at universities in India, Our conversation with Jigisha aims to understand what drives the protest action, how students are mobilizing to create change and seek justice, and how the state is responding. Before we chat to Jigisha, our producer Simbarashe Honde offers a short summary of recent events in the higher education sector in India.
0: It is interesting to note that student protests are not just a South African phenomenon. The past two years have seen intense Fisma's fall protest in the country. We started right here at Wits University and spread to the rest of the universities in the country. In this particular episode, Mehita Ikani looks into the student protest in India. There are interesting similarities between the protests there and here in South Africa. Just to give you a little summary of the background of the situation in India. By March 2017, Jawaharlal Nehru University, one of the biggest universities there, had in the past nine months had 92 protests in the campus. This protest obviously disrupted the functioning of the university life, which also saw management taking the student leaders to court over the protest. However, in March, an Indian High Court upheld the student protest in the campus, saying that the students had had every right to protest in public as what would be the purpose of a protest if it was not visible and was held at some remote corner. The protest, as Jigisha, a university student there, will point out later in the interview were triggered after the arrest of student leaders such as Ken Haya Kumar and Umar Khalid. The police are yet to file a charge sheet against them, the first step to putting them on trial. Most protests are fueled by the use of social Media drawing much media attention. The official reaction of the police and judiciary to the protest at the universities is feeding a growing perception in India of a rise of intolerance by the ruling party under Narendra Modi's leadership since he came to power in 2014. Modi is perceived by his critics as a deeply polarizing figure and has been accused of fostering secretarian prejudice or authoritarian tendencies. The government has also been accused of trying to repress free speech. The protests are also a reminder that areas of history, education and culture are becoming battlegrounds in a struggle for dominance by Indian secular left and Hindu nationalists. At least one student studying to be a doctor was found dead. He had been suspended with five others after being accused of assaulting the head of a student political group.
1: Good morning, hello and a very warm welcome to Jigisha Bhattacharya who is joining us on the line from Delhi in India.
2: Good morning, thanks, thanks a lot for asking me to join your interview.
1: We're very happy to to chat with you. So perhaps you could kick us off by just telling us where you're placed in uh, the the higher education system in India. I believe you're a post-grad student, is that right?
2: Yeah, I am I am doing my master's program from JNU, the Center for English Studies in JNU. So I'm mostly based in Delhi, but uh, I have done my graduation from Calcutta. That's also a city where I have been pretty much involved in the student politics.
1: Okay, fantastic. Well, we're very, very glad to be speaking with you and trying to get insight and understanding into what's going on um, in the university sector in India at the moment. So perhaps you, you could start by telling us from your perspectives and in your experience, what's been going on at Jawaharlal Nehru University JNU? In the past year or so, because we've seen through media reports that there have been some student movements. Although it's not always clear in the reporting that we get um, internationally about what the the causes are and what the complaints are. So perhaps you could start of, start us off there. with what are students protesting about right now, and why?
2: Uh, yeah. So honestly speaking, it, uh, like a lot is going on since the past year, in especially in Jawaharlal Nehru University. But do like uh, make a few notes about what exactly is happening and how it's connected to the uh, larger picture in India. The, initially, there used to be a lot of protests as far the administrative decisions which the students thought are anti student mm-hmm. uh, However, last year, what uh, you were also saying that you received a lot of media coverage and all of that throughout the world. So there was this program that was taking place commemorating a death of this uh, person and then there was a lot of, there's this Nationalist Party which is all, also the ruling party of India right now and their students uh, there was a brawl between two, uh, not exactly organizations, but a uh, brawl between the leftist students on campus and uh, the Nationalist Party Student Wing, which is called the ABVP. So, uh, and then everything started and the uh, student union leader, the student union we have in JNU, the leader was picked up and uh, a whole lot of uh, retaliation followed even in the outside, uh, where uh, students were specifically targeted because they belong to this university. As of now, recently. Recently, there has been a person who comes from a definite caste background, the lower caste background. He has committed suicide and um, it's also falling in a larger... Picture of India because last year uh, in January 2016, uh, there was this person who committed suicide as well in uh, this place called Hyderabad, which belongs to the southern part of India. Mm-hmm. So, and he also uh, became belonged to a lower caste background. So, everything we cannot see probably the Harlal Nehru University incidents in isolation, okay. and we have to connect it. To the,
1: larger... to the larger picture. Okay, so you, you've mentioned quite a lot of very concerning things that have happened. Um, so perhaps we can start, maybe we can kind of speak about each of those separately. So on the, the, on the one hand, you say there have been some very troubling and upsetting suicides by, by scholars. Um, so, and, and is that linked to feelings of, of exclusion based on caste? So can you talk us through that a little bit more? What kinds of exclusions are being experienced by people of, of, of so-called lower costs? And how, how is the university handling those? How are universities handling those kinds of exclusions?
2: It's uh, difficult to exactly say, for example, pinpoint or which always runs the risk of reducing it to something, uh, the debts to something that mm. it probably was not in the first place. But uh, however, there have been um, like these two are the ones which kind of uh, grabbed the media attention as well as uh, crowded political resistance all over India. Mm -hmm. So these two are probably like two markers in the uh, Indian student politics right now and also there have been other incidents in other universities but uh, as generally happens because there are not uh, central universities or universities which are situated in other uh, non-metropolitan parts of India so they not receive as well as it's always not possible as well to react to everything that's happening that's there but uh, they did not receive as much attention. But um, starting with the uh, first suicide that happened in a southern region uh, which is in Hyderabad uh, this uh, student called Rohit Vemula mm-hmm. he committed suicide and uh, then it's a recent case in JNU which happened and it uh, got this person called Krish Rajni Krish as he would like to call him. Uh, he committed suicide. There is a lot has been written as well on these deaths why uh, how this happened why this happened and all of that but uh, in my understanding what uh, bothers like what might possibly be the cause that they are so their faith so deeply discriminated uh, would be a general practice in academia which uh, say for example in india it has been a case of like caste the issue of caste is peculiar to indian context and uh, it, there can be similar distinctions drawn uh, to the issues of racism or ethnicity mm. discrimination mm. in other parts of uh, the world but uh, caste has a peculiar character as well of uh, because uh, it's related to a certain religion and then there are discriminations on the basis of your origin and how you follow your religion and other uh, processes you carry of your religion Mm -hmm. or of your daily basis. It also has a character which uh, forces you to kind of participate in a very singular kind of work which is assigned which used to be the case initially and then the caste uh, issue has uh, changed a lot in the sense uh, that uh, the discriminations that are in place are not the similar kind of discriminations that used to happen, say, in the originary times of the caste system. However, in the contemporary academia, which uh, what happens and a lot of people who have uh, been vocal about the issues, there are organizations, there are platforms, there are movements against the caste issue as well and and uh, what happens in those, like what have the issues that have come to the fore is mostly that even within there is a system of a particular reservation in academic uh, admissions where uh, people from certain, uh, like the lower caste backgrounds, they get a system of reservation to ensure that they these people from different backgrounds. Uh, oppressed backgrounds also get a chance to have the similar resources, have access to the similar resources in the university. But what happens that uh, it's a difficult fight even uh, to secure the reservations in the public universities. There uh, used to be like a lot of movements, there happened a lot of movements, then there were a lot of policy research that happened on the governmental level and then this was implemented and it's a new, it's a pretty recent thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, even after the reservation system is there, what happens is uh, it does not, the reservation system that exists on the administrative uh, administrative level, it does not reflect in the everyday process or everyday practice of the students or the teachers Mm -hmm. who participate in the process of being in academia uh, mostly, Mm -hmm. which obviously, uh, say for example, In the case of this particular university students in Jawaharlal Nehru University, uh, there have been uh, issues, there have been uh, posts made, Facebook posts made or uh, the organizations that are there or the people who are speaking against, uh, like who have been really deeply affected by this suicide are saying and coming out to say how in their everyday classroom level, the discrimination on the basis of caste plays out. Mm. And in the case of Rohit Vemula, uh, what happened was, uh, what happened had a like different kind of implication because he there was a major uh, incident that uh, he was not receiving the scholarship he was supposed to receive, which leads us to... Uh, an issue another issue which is kind of overarching in the Indian student politics, which is the lack of scholarships mm. and uh like last year even after this uh, Rohit Vemula suicide happened there were joint action committees made on the basis of like state coordination committees and central coordination committees and on the university level and uh, all of these uh, joint action committees when they were uh, at least thinking and discussing what can be the step forward they came up with this act what they wanted to pass in the parliament and it till in the process of like being passed in the parliament and all of that so that was called the Rohit Act, we should ensure that uh, even within the reservation system, there would be grievance redressal cells. There would be a specific cells to address to the cater to the uh, communities that come from oppressed backgrounds, oppressed caste backgrounds, so that they have a space to register their complaint which on an everyday level, when the discrimination plays out, often they are left with no place to go to, no one to speak to. Mm-hmm. Because there is if there is a body who is bound to uh, cater to their needs, it becomes a bit more easier for them to kind of deal with the process of discrimination. At mm-hmm. least they have a place to register their complaints or the discriminations they are facing on an everyday level.
1: It's very troubling to hear about these experiences of discrimination on kind of in the everyday lives of students from schools so-called lower castes um and, uh, and from your perspective are, are some of the um the the systems being put into place to try and address that discrimination are they sufficient are they working um are students d- feeling that their complaints and are being heard or do they feel further alienated by the kind of institutionalization of the the response
2: Uh, So, uh, it's still in process. It's not been passed. So, the step has not been taken yet of passing those uh, redressal cells. It's not functional as of now. It's Mm -hmm. not been passed. Mm -hmm. Because the government, the state is not ready to, uh, has not ever said yes to passing the Act. It Mm -hmm. always, like whenever it's been placed in the Parliament, uh, there has not been any consensus as Mm -hmm. to whether they should pass it or not mm-hmm. on a university level. Mm-hmm. However, the universities in themselves are trying to, uh, trying to have grievance redressal cells or mm-hmm. uh, caste-based discrimination redressal cells mm. uh, on their own. And there have been movements in order to uh, assure that there are such.
1: It's just tragic. It's tragic that two young people had to commit suicide before that action was taken. And I'm sure that's a very traumatic set of experiences for students. For oh, not only for the family and friends of these two, these two people, but you know, for the, the the student community in general, must be rather upset.
2: Yeah, sure. It also kind of extends a sense of uh, a collective failure that is mm-hmm. the university community as such, the students and the teachers failed somewhere mm-hmm. in order to that we
1: could not uh, stop. It's it's really sad, but at, at least you know, it's well. I guess one silver lining is that it has fed into a more kind of activist student politics that is seeking actively to to change the status quo and to improve things and to end discrimination on all levels. I, I read an interesting uh, statistic online, just shifting um, the topic a little bit, that at you, at JNU, which is where you're based, that in, in the past several months, there have been, I don't know if this number is correct, but there have been apparently 92 protests on campus in the past... Um, is that is that true? And if so, what are the protests about?
2: Like every, every month, uh, there is something or the other happening. And uh, it's really like there is no other way but to protest in those instances. So I guess uh, the number might be correct. Like I have... <laughs>
1: not. Of course, you haven't counted. <laughs> but what's interesting to me is the scale of it. Less so than how many there have been, and and I understand that many of these protests have been about discrimination. Um, but what what other kinds of issues are driving? So you mentioned that there has been there's been some discontent about um, the kind of activities of the nationalist government.
2: Well, uh, honestly speaking, uh, in terms of student. Response It has to be a mixed response because uh, the student organization uh, that they have, the nationalist parties. Student organization. They are also like pretty huge in numbers, Mm. and like one has to say that, uh, like, if they have numbers, then that obviously entails to a reaction which won't be the reaction that uh, the more whatever this resistance or the movements that are sprouting all over India that are of the same nature. But in order to kind of like give a few points about uh, what can be the possible, uh, like, what are the possible. Uh, points of uh, dispute would be, say for example uh, last, I think 2015 December, there was in Nairobi there was uh, the WTO uh, conference where uh, the entire public education sector that that's in India, that was going as to become a commodity trade uh, in the World Trade uh, Organization uh, conference. So there were protests took place in order to obviously register the issue that the public universities are going to get privatized, which obviously means fees like, which obviously means that students from certain backgrounds, certain class backgrounds, certain caste backgrounds, certain ethnicity backgrounds won't have any chance whatsoever to even access resources that a public university is supposed to provide them. Mm-hmm. And there were a few protests that uh, almost on a uh, national level in India broke out. However, I think uh, last year, 2016, was a major uh, kind of shift in the student politics where uh, there in relation to the Occupy movements that happened worldwide, there was a movement which uh, happened, which was Occupy UGC. So, UGC is the University Grants Commission that, that's in India, which uh, mm-hmm. obviously is the overarching body over all the public universities, the central universities, and the state universities in India. So, uh, what they did was uh, for the higher research uh, scholarship, they organized this uh, test, which is a national test. And uh, earlier, there used to be a discrepancy in the form of, say, who people who pass the test would get a certain amount of stipend and people who own would get a lesser amount of stipend when they conduct their researches. Mm -hmm. And one has to understand how research uh, is also a work that researchers are produced. For the university, for the benefit of the university as well, Mm -hmm. because the university often gets funds on the basis of what research is they are producing. However, what they did was they completely did away with the scholarships that used to be the non-net scholarships, which used to be the scholarships that even if you don't pass that one exam, you would still get some amount of traffic. Mm -hmm. Which means, especially considering, if you consider the issue of gender within the Indian context, a lot of people, because uh, it's contextually different from a lot of other parts in the world, and that's why... A lot of people, a lot of women especially, only depend on that stipend in order to continue their study. Because uh, there is, at least in some, in like I should not be generalizing, but it's a major uh, issue that uh, in Indian context, if women reach a certain age there are pressure from their families to get married or whatever, Mm -hmm. to settle down. So it's difficult for people from certain backgrounds in order to stay in academia. And those were the scholarships, the scholarships or the stipends that were the means that provided them the ability to stay in academia Mm. or in some cases even like go against the societal or familial pressures that Mm. used to come and they completely did away with those uh, scholarships. So there were student protests all over India, and especially since the headquarter of this UGC or the University Grants Commission is in India, uh, in. Delhi. So there was a Occupy, an Occupy movement which uh, went on for like almost a month. So that was a major shift point where students stayed overnight, students ate, students had uh, organized cultural programs. They invited people from different sectors, different activists from different sectors to give talks and all of that happened. Students uh, went to different universities in order to build solidarity. So that happened though that did not really flesh out to any concrete demand or any concrete result, I would say, but the like human and resource development minister did meet the students, had to meet the students, then take into cognizance what the demands were and all of that. And there was also police retaliation, heavy police retaliation mm-hmm. that happened in all of this movement. So that. so
1: that sounds very familiar to some of the issues and ac- activities that we've seen in South Africa in the past couple of years. We've also seen the rise okay. of a student movement in response directly to questions of funding and we've also seen quite a heavy kind of crackdown um from the authorities and from from the police so could you tell us more about how students experienced especially the the kind of police retaliation because what you were describing of the kind of occupied uh, university grant offices sounded very progressive to me. It sounded like you were organising cultural programs, intellectual exchange, kind of. Um, and yet, it was met with kind of a policed, a securitized response. What, what was the student experience of that? I mean, how, were people hurt? Were people traumatised? Or you know, or did it did it effectively manage to kind of break apart that moment and and that politics?
2: I would say that. Though the police retaliation was not what kind of effectually like kind of dispersed the student movement because what dispersed the student movement was the longevity of the occupation because Mm -hmm. it was very hard after a point of time because the students who who were there were from different universities and the semesters were going on and obviously Mm. they have certain boundaries which they have to perform in their everyday life so the longevity was what was the major problem in su- sustaining the movement mm. however uh, so for example like at least for people in our generation uh, like police retaliation would not be a very new thing because uh, whenever the movements uh, have happened like last time uh, i think in 2000 uh, and there was uh, this uh, movement which happened in Calcutta where a student was a female student was uh, harassed and there was a complaint of sexual harassment and students were protesting uh, against that Mm. because uh, the university did not take into cognizance the students complaint. so Mm. the students were protesting and they kind of not blockaded they were uh, doing a gathering in the university office and the VC of the university ordered a police Lati charge on them. So uh, then afterwards what happened was the state eventually there was a sustained movement and the state eventually had to a kind of withdraw the VC and appoint a new VC in that university so that was one major sort of uh, kind of I would say a major victory in that hmm. of the student movement that happened and that also happened majorly because the police retaliated on students within university campuses and, uh, like uh, that the movement happened uh, when like almost people over uh, a lakh, uh, ten thousands of people uh, came, ten hundred thousands of people came outside on the streets.
1: And this was in response to the sexual uh, harassment case? Okay.
2: Yeah, this okay. was in response to a gathering that students had uh, because the sexual harassment yes. complaint was not being registered in the
1: university.
2: So that was the cause. In the UGC occupation, what happened was students were majorly hurt. If, even in the protests that were happening uh, against the suicide that Rohit Vemula committed. Mm. Uh, there were also police retaliations on a heavy level. So uh, the students were hurt pretty badly. They were bruised, and uh, like the students because uh, the University Grants Commission is uh, situated almost next to a high road. So the students were effectively on the high road and the police chased them to any place they could find and they could go. To. So that was kind of traumatic for a lot of students, obviously, people especially who are not, I would say, seasoned in the Mm -hmm. student politics. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of very difficult for them in order to cope with the reality that the police retaliation can be of this level. However, uh, it was not something that uh, was effective in breaking down the movement
1: and we also saw quite an interesting i guess um face off between students and police in South Africa and and you know i was on campus sometimes really only on the periphery of some of the some of the um kind of clashes that happened and the one thing that struck me was that it's there was this sure. class kind of difference that there were all of these students who were either middle class or aspiring to be middle class who were facing off against these policemen and women but mainly men who were coming from quite working class backgrounds and there was this this tension you know between between the two groups and i just wonder if there was a kind of a similar like how how do the the how do students regard the police and vice versa in india do they see each other as completely like from completely different social groups or do they recognize that they're kind of in it together, effectively in the in the long run. In mind
2: that uh, the police, which comes from similar grounds as maybe you are from, at the moment I don't think it works. It works as almost like a division of totally opposing social groups. Like mm. there is the police and there are the students. Even in the face-offs, that was what happened. Like students were so angry that uh, in the barricades and everything, they were like people were protesting, being in boundaries, so to speak,
1: but. Uh, Without getting violent. Basically, you were, as far as I understand, you're dis- discussing the use of violence. So how students would use these nonviolent forms of protest, yet they would be met by violence from the state. Um, and does this tie in, you know, earlier on in our conversation, you said that effectively there's a, there's a sense amongst students that universities are anti-student. What does that experience of, of an anti-student state or an anti-student institution feel like? What is the lived experience of that? For students?
2: Uh, well uh, say for example uh, there is this uh, like I can say from my personal experience like only day before yesterday there was a circular from Jawaharlal Nehru University where people are offered like the students are offered postgraduate programs and research programs uh, and PhD programs doctorate programs I mean so uh, yesterday, the day before yesterday, actually, this circular came up where, like, the number of admissions to the doctoral programs, which used to be almost a thousand, was drastically cut short to a hundred vacancy. And, like, people like me who are in their postgraduate final semester and who are at least hoping, though there is an entrance test, who are at least hoping that there will be seats and they will at least be checking their luck whether to whether they can get a doc, get into a doctoral program or not they are left with no choice there are no seats in like most departments there are zero vacancies which is an absolute drastic move and there is no logical progression as to why this is happening and what can be the possible whatever like mm. met motive behind whatever is happening so that's Like almost a direct uh, threat that we are almost uh, feeling like that we are facing from the administration. Uh, There are other, uh, I would say, uh, different kinds of uh, anti-student feelings that we get on an everyday basis. As for example, uh, in the Delhi University which is just uh, close enough to this Jawaharlal Nehru University. In Delhi University, in most of the hostels uh, where people stay, mostly in the women hostels, like not in the hostels where men stay but in the women's hostels there is there are curfews like which are like at 8 o'clock in the evening 9 o'clock in the evening and after that you cannot go out and if you have to go out you can only take a certain number of night outs uh, which you have to pre-register uh, to the hostel authority or whatever and you can you have to give an entire detail of why you need that
1: uh, night out or whatever so that's like that's uh, appalling I mean that's treating that's treating students like children also like
2: how blatant can you be because in a men's hostels I'm not saying that the ideal way forward is to impose a curfew on the men's hostel but you don't have any curfew whatsoever in the men's hostels, mm. but you have them in the women's hospitals, And all on the basis,
1: all on the pretext of you have to protect women. Yeah it's blatantly sexist, blatantly blatantly discriminatory. And how are women students um, resisting this this set of rules, this very patriarchal set of rules? Right.
2: Uh, there have been quite a few movements uh, on the basis of that. There is this group uh, called Pinjra Tor. Pinjra in Hindi means uh, a prison or a cage. Tor means to break apart from a cage. So uh, there has been this movement with Effectively, uh, went to the uh, women like the women's development cell of Delhi that has uh, to the officials. They collected signatures. They went to all the paying guest uh, housings or the hostel housings, and uh, effectively could uh, like people participated and different kinds of there was uh, what is called in Hindi a Jan Sunwai, which is like a public hearing of some sort. We arranged for some public hearings where people and students, especially women students. It's mostly an all-women uh, platform. And though people from other gender identities obviously join in, but it's mostly operated from an all-women platform and uh, organized hearings where people would just come up and say how on how many levels they have faced that sexist discrimination. So that also happened. And especially with relation to last year, uh, this UGC, University Grants Commission, the official uh, mm-hmm. governmental body, they brought out this uh, circular which uh, had... Like, like absurd rules, like they have to put barbed wares outside hostels. There would be host in the hostels, there would be CCTVs in hostels, you could not be able to go out after a certain number of times, and all of that. And it's like all for women's hostels, and all on the pretext that they need to protect their women.
1: I mean, that is a, a struggle worth fighting, and you have uh, my solidarity. <laughs> Um, from all of from from far away in that struggle um you know speaking of all of these struggles different forms of gender and caste discrimination different forms of underfunding and um, anti-student policies that you that you've you know articulated and explained to us how do you see the struggles of students connected around the world so i know often they feel very local these are the struggles we are having here in our university in our city or in our country um, and those you know differ those are unique according to context and culture and politics um, but arguably there's also some links between the struggles that students are having all around the world. And what do you, how do you see those links? What do you think could unite a kind of more global movement of students, a, a progressive movement of students?
2: Uh, it's uh, really difficult to play, kind of formulate uh, what can be the possible entry points to that. However, uh, I would think that if we probably have a sense that uh, the universities that we are from in whatever part of the world they are situated in are also implicated in the structures of operation mm-hmm. so which Mm. kind of operates in the larger form of society mm. so even if contextually all the movements are different all the like contexts obviously are different and contextually the movements mm. uh, the characters would differ I think uh, if there is a larger sense that uh, whatever is happening on a more uh, global level in terms of economy in terms of politics and that kind of gets reflected in the university uh, areas as well in mm. the university spaces as well then maybe there is a chance that we could uh, be able to forge a connection between different mm. uh, of course, student movements around the globe especially I think this uh, like this obviously reflects on the current academic economic situation where especially on university spaces there is a lack of funding all the public university spaces that we used to have at least in certain parts of the world they're going for complete privatization mm. And it has to do with uh, something with the larger economic crisis or the model that uh, pre-existent all over the world.
1: Mm, I absolutely agree. I mean, the the move of universities around the world towards kind of behaving like private businesses rather than public institutions is something that that I think is shared despite all of the... Go ahead.
2: Yeah, Uh, I think there is also a kind of a special, uh, whatever I would say, uh, rejection of the humanities departments Mm. in that matter because the humanities at least in science and the technical uh, departments or the medicine or the in- or engineering or whatever the uh, te- technological departments or in the science departments, we at least see that the retaliation is not as severe. But for mm. humanities students or social sciences students, it's uh, it's like a bizarre situation because uh, we do not have as much spaces to go to in the first place. And then those few spaces we have are going fewer and fewer mm. uh, with time.
1: Yeah, I think that's a good point. And it's interesting that a lot of um, protest comes from the kind of critical social sciences and critical humanities. Okay, was there anything else you wanted to share with us um, perhaps that I didn't get around to asking you about? Uh, you did. You talked a lot and you told us so many interesting and important things. Yeah. So thank you. Thank you so much for your time, Jigisha. Thank it's
2: you so much. It's a great initiative
1: that you are having all these. Uh... Oh, thank you. I am glad to be a part of it. I'm so glad that you're a part of it too.
0: We would like to apologize for the poor sound quality of today's episode. We had technical issues with Skype when recording the interview with Jigisha in India. However, we have tried our utmost best to keep the podcast nice and smooth. The Academic Citizen is a podcast sponsored by ASAU, the Academic Staff Association of WETS University. ASAU is the union representing the interests of academic staff at WETS. For more information, visit www.asau.org.za. The Academic Citizen aims to be a platform for a diversity of views and opinions. We welcome your feedback, comments and suggestions for future guests and shows. Email us at theacademiccitizen at gmail.com or leave a comment at www.theacademiccitizen.org. Research, scheduling, editing, and production was done by me, Simbarashe Wondem. Jager Melko created our jingles.